Let's go to God's word together in prayer. Father, as we open your word this day, we pray that you would in every way guide us, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds, that you would draw us in, that we would know more of you. Father, bring this scripture to life in us as we enter into this holy week where we celebrate what it means that you walk that long road to Calvary, that you suffered, Lord, that you endured so that we would know eternal life, that we would know new life here on earth and restored life yet to come. So God, guide my words. Lord, forgive my sins for they are many, that they would be used by your spirit to illuminate our hearts and lives in these difficult days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a Bible tab here on this page where you can click and get into God's Word or use your own copy. We're going to go to Luke chapter 22, and we're going to start in verse 63 through verse 71, the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 22, a familiar passage of Scripture where Jesus finds himself mocked and beaten. He is taken away, and he is at the house of Caiaphas, uh, actually father-in-law, the high priest. He's there, and he is being beaten, and he is being held illegally without trial. We're going to see how God works in his life, and we're going to see how God uses us. He calls us to give up suffering. That's what we're talking about, what we need to give up before God, what we need to understand that suffering is a part of the Christian existence, and that Jesus understands our suffering, as we'll see today in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 63. Let's go to God's word together. The men who were holding Jesus started mocking and beating him. After blindfolding him, they kept asking, prophesy, who was it that hit you? And they were saying many other blasphemous things to him. When the daylight came, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him before their Sanhedrin. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, if I do tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. They all asked, Are you then the Son of God? And he said to them, You say that I am. Why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth. This is God's holy word. The last few weeks in our world have been profoundly difficult for us. We've dealt with so many unknowns. We've seen a mounting loss of life and fear and anguish overwhelms us of what might yet be to come. We think that no one can understand what this feels like for us. We think of others around the world who are hurting profoundly worse than we are. And we think that we have no way of understanding how they feel, that no one understands how we feel. No matter our circumstances, nor the circumstances of others, we may wonder, how then can Jesus relate to us? What does God think about all this? I don't believe, friends, it's an accident that we are enduring this time in the midst of the Lenten season as we come face to face with Christ's passion. This is the time when we reflect on what it means for us that God came and that he walked among us and he knew what it was like to be one of us. And if you've ever read these stories, if you've read the passion account of Jesus, you know these are difficult events that occur in Jesus's life. He faces difficult things. First, his friends fall asleep on him. Then they draw their swords to kill for him. Soon after, they deny him and run away into the night, betraying him. 
Judas particularly and premeditatedly betrays Jesus for selfish reason because the kingdom Jesus brought was not the one that Judas expected. Taking up crosses, dying to live, didn't sound good to Judas at all. So he traded Jesus' life away for 30 pieces of silver. Immediately he regretted it and ended up taking his own life. Judas was not ready to give anything up or to sacrifice anything for Jesus. But Peter was perhaps worse because he promised that he would die for Jesus. He would give up anything for Jesus. And yet he too, just before this passage, denies Jesus three times, just as the rooster crows and Peter locks eyes with Jesus. He felt shame and guilt and brokenness. And that's what sin creates in us. Repentance requires a response from us, and repentance requires us that we would think not of ourselves, but of our Lord, of God. Repentance requires we recognize that whatever we have, it's not enough, and that Jesus alone is enough. Perhaps this is one of the best things in Lent. We make space for God to have more of us. We recognize He is all that we need. We recenter our lives around Christ and around that sacrifice, that calling that he gives to us, the mission he gives to us to share the gospel. We are all called to share Christ with a broken and hurting world. That may make more sense to us now than ever before. It's not fair to say we're living in the midst of some real change in our world. We thought things were changing and difficult before the coronavirus. Now what do we think? Perhaps you're like me and you look at the news around you and you wonder how radically will things be different when this is all said and done and your mind may race with possibilities. But remember, when the dust settles, the most important thing we can do is remember God has a call for us that we can look back and see that no matter where we've been and what we've endured from before through today, God has a plan and a purpose for us today. In these moments, we need to stick with that. We need to focus on what God is calling us to do today. How can we respond? How should we respond today to what God is doing in the world? Whether in these times of quiet that we've known in the past or what feel like seismic shifts in the world around us today, some of the worst things in human beings can be revealed in difficult times like those we are experiencing but also some of the most beautiful things, some of the most wonderful things that we are capable of as people made in God's image. Stories of hope, compassion, and giving. The way that our church family has provided for one another. People that are contacting me, how can I help with this? I have some of this. Can someone use those things? It's wonderful and it does my heart good and I want it to do your heart good as well. There are things we can cheer about even in these days and we can thankfully praise God as we talked about in our call to worship today because he's doing wonderful things even when things seem dark and difficult as they do in this passage we can see how God is at work there are glimmers of hope even when life seems cruel and uncertain for us and if you feel like life is especially difficult right now if these have been dark days I have good news for you Jesus understands what that cruelty feels like, 
what that emptiness, what that uncertainty feels like. Even though God knew what was coming, even though Jesus was aware, he had all those human emotions, fully man and fully God. But if anyone had the right to complain that what he was facing was unfair, whether he knew about it or not, if it was unjust, if anybody had any right to complain, it was certainly Jesus. Arrested late in the evening, he was taken to face that ruling council, the Sanhedrin, 71 men representing the different factions of the, the Jewish aristocracy and government. The religious leaders were certainly there, and they felt Jesus was more than a nuisance. He was more than a nutcase. To them, Jesus was a threat, and they wanted him eliminated. They wanted him gone, but they had a real problem as their own law provided that Jesus be tried during the daytime and in the public eye for obvious reasons. But the leaders know that Jesus is very popular as they've seen him as this is Palm Sunday. We know that Jesus rode in as we've already talked about this Lenten season and the people saying, Hosanna, Hoshina, save us. This stirred up comparisons to Old Testament promises from places like Zechariah 9.9 where the one who would bring peace, who would bring restoration to God's people, rode in on a donkey. Now the Roman captors, who this Jewish ruling council also feared, they had an eye, one eye on Jesus and on all the people because they knew the Passover was when all these things would bubble up to the surface. And they had their other eye on the Sanhedrin. They didn't trust him. They knew that while the Sanhedrin was cooperating for their own protection, that they hated the Roman occupying forces. And they would like to see nothing more but to have them eliminated and, of course, have their freedom and their national pride restored. That's what happens there on that Palm Sunday. They're waving palm branches, which was a symbol of nationalism. It'd be like red, white, and blue banners for us here in America. So they're watching all of this. As it bubbles up to the surface, the Sanhedrin decides they must take action. You see, nothing good comes from those moments when we feel powerless and we say to ourselves, I must do something. Maybe you felt like that lately. Maybe right now you feel like that in the midst of what's going on. I certainly don't blame you. It's a very human, it's a natural inclination and a feeling that we all have. We've all had those at times in our lives. We've all had different times when we just feel completely overwhelmed. And then at the end of it, we look back and we may think to ourselves, man, that was really difficult, or why didn't I trust God more? I don't know if you've had moments, but I've had times like that. I'm sure as we look back in days yet to come, we will reflect and say, these things were so hard, but these other things I worried about, they really weren't that big of a deal. Where does this worry, where does this need to have control, where does this need to accuse others, to somehow take out our own frustrations and fears on others, where does this come from when it bubbles up inside of us? It comes from the depths of sin in the human heart. And the accusation that our own sin, our own fear, all those things that we know that are not of God in us, that's what sin is, all that sin bubbles up and it creates accusation. We wanna point a finger, we wanna take out our frustrations, our anguishes, in our fears. We hate as human beings feeling powerless. And if there's ever been a time in our lives we've experienced powerlessness, now would be one of those times. 
So that accusation deep down tells us, man, I have got to do something. That's what the Sanhedrin felt as they had Jesus imprisoned at Caiaphas's house. That's what they felt like. And the guards and the thugs of the religious leaders, yeah, I know uh, religious leaders don't normally have thugs. Uh, when we're here meeting in this space, we have ushers. They're not really thugs. Uh, I don't think our, our elders, our session would, would count as thugs or anything of that sort. And when they call you up for your shepherding groups, hopefully they're not acting like some kind of uh, members of the Sopranos or something like that. But these guys, they had, they had thugs. They had armed guards and they laugh and they mock Jesus. They're insulting him asking him as he's there blindfolded and beaten to identify as his eyes are even possibly bruised shut by this time prophesy tell us who struck you it's a horrific scene and the word they're using here as they're asking this word here is paiesis it's from the aorist tense in, in the bible in the greek and here in luke 22 it shows us that jesus was being asked this over and over, this beating and this mocking and this questioning, this word tells us it was repeated. It happened throughout the entirety of the night, continually, interrogation, beatings, even though we knew it was illegal, even though we knew it wasn't right. Now we can become, I don't want to say desensitized, but maybe we've heard the story so many times, we don't think about how unjust the situation is for any person, let alone the Son of God. What Jesus suffered was real. It was personal, continual, verbal, emotional, and physical abuse. Now, in this extraordinary time, we can think of what it means like to be pushed to the brink, to have stress and frustration and hurt. But this kind of abuse, some people suffer. They live in abusive situations for years. They know what it's like to be mocked and to be beaten in ways that many of us can never comprehend. Some of you watching this today, you may have been someone who has faced abuse. You may in a very personal way connect to this part of Jesus' story. And think about this. Jesus, he has the power to end all of this. When he faces his temptation... He, is, he tells Satan, I have the power. I can do whatever I want to do, but I stand here in my father's plan. He tells Satan he's not going to use that power. In fact, that's a temptation. It's wrong for him to do that. We learn in Matthew chapter 26, 53 and 54, Jesus could have stopped all of this at any moment. He had the power. He has the power to stop this beating. He has the power to come off of the cross if he so desires as we'll talk about next Sunday. Yet, even when he seems helpless, he's not. He chooses not to take control. In fact, as he prays, he tells his Father in heaven in the garden before he's taken off to be beaten, he says, you know, Father, if you can't take this cup of suffering from me, not my will be done. He says, your will be done. That's what he prays to his Father. As he commits to this, as he follows, Jesus is submitting to God's plan to save all of humanity through his sacrifice. So as he's being mocked and abused and even disfigured, he knows what's going on. We understand that from all the prophecy in scripture, he didn't even 
look like a person. He was so disfigured by the end of this. He was so physically beaten. This week, take a look at Isaiah chapter 50 and what it says, what it prophesies about what Christ would endure. He has come to defeat the entirety of sin. And let's face it, sin is ugly. And all the ugliness of sin for all of humanity is placed on Jesus. That description in Isaiah 50 and other passages of Scripture, they're stark. They're painful. Jesus understands your life. He understands mine. He understands it because he lived it. No matter what horrible, uncertain, difficult, painful things we are facing, no matter how heinous or unthinkable of a thing you've experienced in this life, Jesus understands. You must know that he understands. He can relate to it. He can understand how you're feeling because he's endured the worst of human sin and suffering himself. He knows how you feel. And he wants you to know in that moment of despair and pain that he is with you, that he loves you in that moment or moments in your life. They will not define you. They won't. So, if we know he loves us, if he understands us, and as we face this season of uncertainty and pain for many in our world right now, we may ask a simple question, where is God in the middle of all of this? What is he doing? Now more than ever, we may be asking that question. When we experience pain, hurt, injustice, despair, all the things that sin causes. And let's be honest, sin, whether it's what we have done without recognizing how much it would hurt us or others or what others have done to us, sin creates, in a holistic sense, trauma in our hearts, in our lives, in our emotions, in our minds, in our bodies. Even a virus that we can't see is a byproduct of sin that has entered into this world. Sin, it hurts us. And we want to say, God, where were you? How can you understand all of this, God? Are you really out there? How do you understand all of this? Do you really love me? Are you really with me? What good can possibly come from this? All good, actually. More good than you and I can ever imagine. In fact, understanding this truth can transform our lives, not only how we live today, but how we are able to react to suffering. It allows us to even see our suffering as something God can and will redeem in our lives, and perhaps in the lives of others, even the worst things that have happened to us or the biggest mistakes we've made in our lives. Read the words here, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. This is Peter who just before our passage today has denied Jesus and fallen into the depths of despair. The one that said he'd never leave Jesus. He was ready to die for him. He was ready to draw his sword and kill for Jesus. He denied him three times and ran off into the night. Peter knew the depths of despair, and as he observed Jesus, he heard him being mocked and being beaten in that home. He's out there trying to 
just catch a glimpse to find out what's going on. He's there. We see John comes into the picture just to catch a glimpse. What's happening? What's happening? Here's what Peter says later. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. Peter said, For if, having escaped the world's impurity through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in these things and defeated, the last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. Peter, he knew the rage and the shame that he felt when he ran from Jesus. He felt that anguish again as he saw Jesus being abused, and yet he denied him. He denied him three times. He knows how that made him feel, how worthless and how shameful Peter felt. And he says about people that know God's word and, and yet don't respond and don't stay with what God has said. It, it, it's worse than anything. they've Whatever they think they've experienced before, what they're experiencing after, it's even worse. The real pain, the real injustice and suffering is not even what happens sometimes. It's how you feel and how that can stick with you afterward. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't respond the way that we do. He didn't propagate the cycle of abuse and how he lived and how he treated others. He even came to Peter later and forgave him three times. He didn't say, you know what, Peter, you're right. You're kind of a turkey and you did a bad job. In fact, you're a horrible person, Peter. I want you to think about that for the rest of your life. Some of us might have been tempted to do that. To say, hey, Peter, you don't know how much abuse I suffered. What you heard was only the half of it not Jesus. That's not what he does. He doesn't do any of that. He didn't mock. He didn't fight. He didn't threaten. He didn't lay out a guilt trip on someone afterwards. He didn't do any of those things. Even though Jesus had power beyond any superhero in any movie that we've ever seen, he quite literally could have destroyed the situation, the abuse that he was suffering with just a word from his lips, a thought of his mind. But he didn't. Instead, Jesus trusted the plan his heavenly Father had placed before him to walk the road to Calvary for you and me. He trusted his Father who controls all things by his sovereign power, by his omniscience, his knowledge of all things. He ruled those things with grace and mercy and yes, even with justice and truth, God was at work even in Christ's suffering. Jesus did what we could never do. You see, when we suffer and face things in our lives, we face things like we're facing right now even. We're so overwhelmed. We're so angry. We just want to lash out. We're no better than the Sanhedrin was when we feel out of control, when we feel wronged, even when we actually are wronged. It creates anger. It creates destruction. Sin creates more sin in us because we're sinful beings. That's what it does. Whatever response we have, we know that there will be violence. There will be accusation. There will be even vengeance that drives us. We want to respond in sin at times. And only by God's grace are we able to avoid that because Jesus promises that he'll be with us. And we know as Christians, his spirit 
dwells within us and that he guides us, his spirit guides us, his word guides us, that we would honor God even when we suffer so we can bring God glory and we can love and serve others. God can and he does bring blessing for us out of suffering and pain where we can guide others away from that destructive path into something new and into something different. So where is God in suffering? For the Christian, he's dwelling with his spirit in us. He's holding us up and he's guiding us through it. That's not to say we should be victims. That's never to say that we should be in the midst of abuse. It's never to say that we should suffer and allow ourselves to be taken advantage of. That's not what God's word is saying. But when we do endure shame, pain, uncertainty, we can trust that God will bring good from what we've endured and he will walk alongside us through what we endure so that someday, some way, he will take that suffering, that pain, that shame, that hurt, whatever it is for you, and he will use it for good. It's a testimony where Christ is lifted on high for others to see. We can have freedom. We can have wholeness. We can have hope even in the aftermath of what tears us down or tears down the lives of those around us because we know that Jesus, he suffered and he walked that long road to Calvary. Jesus came to be far more than a victim of sin and of abuse. He came to take all the evil and all the abuse that humanity would ever know, all the sin, all the darkness, and all the destruction on his shoulders with that cross that he would carry to Calvary. But we'll learn more about that later this week on Monday Thursday. Now, if you look at Luke twenty-two sixty-seven, the leaders, they looked on as Jesus was mocked, and as they saw him being viciously abused, they wanted him so desperately to declare himself Messiah. That was the only thing they needed, was for him to claim that. They saw that as blasphemy, verbal evidence. Just say it. They were trying to get him. Just say it. Just say that you're God. In their world, all they needed was that to come out of his lips. Let's get real. Our world is the same as Jesus' world. People suffer. Others abuse their power and their position. Even people who have served as church leaders, they have abused their power and position and done great evil. Does that mean that every pastor, that every Christian leader is bad? Of course not. Does that mean every police officer is bad? Every politician is bad? Every parent is bad? No. But it's a reality. When people, they race to hurt one another with what they say, with whatever power they have, they misuse it for their own gain at the expense of others. Think about how we race on social media, even as we're socially distanced from people right now, we can race to say horrible things about leaders or about one another or about how wrong we are about this or that on social media or on the internet. These religious leaders, they were beating Jesus, the Son of God. They had already decided there was no way he was the Son of God. They went as far as to break their own rules and rig a trial to prove he wasn't the Son of God. And as they stare at Jesus, beaten and bloody, they feel they have all the power. What is true doesn't matter because they'll decide what is real and what is true. They have no grace in their eyes as they look 
on Christ, beaten and bloody. As one of their thugs grips him by the throat, just say it. It's hard to imagine. And yet Jesus, he says something they all understood because these were the religious leaders. These were the the good religious people. Jesus reminds them of something from the Old Testament. He draws them back to prophecy in words like Isaiah and the book of Daniel. And in Luke 22, 69, Jesus identifies himself with a phrase we heard last week as we looked at Ezekiel in the Valley of the Dry Bones. He calls himself by one of his favorite names. He says, the son of man. And they imagine recoil. They draw back. They draw back in that moment. The son of man who will be in the presence of the almighty God, God's chosen, God's favored, the one that he has sent out with purpose. Even when he is beaten within inches of his life, Jesus looks at them and he says, You cannot change who I am or what I'm here to accomplish. You actually have no power at all. Jesus, who knew all suffering, knew that the redemption he came to deliver would last forever. That means so much for us because Jesus, who took on all sin and suffering and shame, he will come again and there will be another trial. It'll be a very different trial than the one that experienced that he experienced at Caiaphas's house in the dead of night. Those who sit in judgment of, G, of Jesus and abuse and all the things that they're doing wrong, they're actually condemning the one true God. And Jesus has come to put all that sin, all that destruction, all that selfishness, all that sorrow and shame, he's come to put it all to death. His death on the cross actually will bring life for us and put the eternal power of sin to death. It's the beginning of the end of all that we experience in our world today. Even this virus we're experiencing in our world today, someday sin and shame and death and destruction and hurt, it will be no more. Jesus will come again and he will sit in judgment at a very different trial over all the universe he created and all those who are found in his book of life, all those who have given their lives to him, all of those that he has called to be his very own. He will love them and welcome them and say, no matter what you've done, no matter what has been done to you, you are beautiful and you were chosen and you are mine. Friends, that's what's yet to come. And here we find that we have a decision to make, a decision of how we will live in light of this understanding that Christ understands who we are. He knows our suffering. And yet he chose to suffer for us and take away our sin and our shame. Will we choose in the power of the resurrection, in the power of the spirit that dwells within us, to speak life and love and grace and truth to those who bring hurt and darkness, those who bring fear and uncertainty? Will we look at them and stand in the strength of our faith in Jesus Christ, the true and just judge, the Messiah who has defeated sin and death and darkness. As Christ stands before these false judges in a fake trial, he reminds us that he is not the victim and he will return as the true and just judge in power and in majesty. 
Jesus says that. He says, he reminds his disciples that he'll be back. He tells them that as he ascends to heaven later, he says, do what I have you here for do and know that I'm with you to the very end. And friends, at the end, we know that he is coming back. Someday he'll come back and we will shout Hosanna just as they shouted on that Palm Sunday so many years ago. We will shout with praise and we will magnify God and thank him that Jesus has returned. The judgment that Jesus declares over God's enemies, it'll be swift, it'll be sure. Jesus has already told them in places like Matthew 23, 11, and 12 that they need to repent, they need to turn away and trust in him. For us, friends, who stand in light of God's truth, who wait on him, who wait for his restoration, the question is simple. Will we be like the Pharisees and continue the cycles of fear manipulation, abuse, and anger, and hurt that perhaps we've experienced in different ways or we've seen in the world around us? Will we justify ourselves and hurt others? Or will we know and rest in God's grace and in God's truth? Will we forgive? Will we love? Will we serve? This past week in the Wednesday Word devotional that went out, I mentioned Corey Ten Boom, who was imprisoned for aiding the Jews who were escaping Nazis, the whore of the Holocaust. She took it on head-on with her family, and she was found out and arrested and sent to the Ravensbrück prison, where so many people were killed. She knew suffering. She lost her father and her beloved sister, Betsy. She knew loss, pain, shame and torture. Years later, after she had been freed, she was traveling around. She had written some of her books, like The Hiding Place that I mentioned on Wednesday, and she was a Christian leader, and she was touring the world and sharing how God could redeem the lives of those who knew suffering and shame and pain. And she found herself at a church in Munich, and after the service, as she was greeting the people who had come to hear her speak, her eyes locked with a man, and she knew immediately who he was. He was a guard from the Ravensbrück prison. Not just a guard, but the guard. The guard who had hurt her and her sister and so many others, had done so much evil and wrong to them. And as she looked on him, he approached her, and he thanked her for her story and explained that he had been a guard at the prison, but now, years later, he had found Christ. I cannot imagine the emotions she was feeling at that moment as she thought about her sister and the others who never made it out of that prison alive. And for those like her who carried the scars of what had been done to them, the evil of what any of us as human beings can do, and the man, he said, Fraulein, I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Will you forgive me? Now, Corey Ten Boom, she understood in that moment that something had to give. She understood what Jesus' captors on that night would never know even if they had a hundred lifetimes because God's Spirit did not 
dwell in them. If my sins have been forgiven, though I sin again and again, Corey Ten Boom said, and I could not forgive, how could I know that God had forgiven me? She wrote later, in that moment, I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do, for I knew I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives had a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. And standing there before this former SS guard, she remembered that forgiveness is an act of the will, not just an emotion. Jesus, help me, she said, she prayed. I can lift my hand, Lord, if I can lift my hand just to shake this man's hand, you can supply the feeling if I can will myself to shake his hand. And that's exactly what she did. She thrust out her hand, and as she did, she said something inside of her incredible took place. A current, she said, started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our hands as they joined. And then this healing warmth flooded my whole being, and it brought tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart, Corey Ten Boom said. For a long moment, we grasped one another's hands, she wrote, the former guard and the former prisoner. She said later, I have never known God's love so intensely as I did on that day. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and I did not have that power. I did not have that emotion. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. This Lent, as life is a little different, as you have perhaps the opportunity to reflect on your own experiences, your own hurts, your own brokenness in a different way, take the time to deal with some of the pain and suffering in your own life, whether it's what has been done to you or whether it's what you have done, what you have said to someone else. Perhaps you're considering the pain and suffering of Jesus today from this passage. I hope you are considering it with, with new eyes even. I want to ask you a question. How much does Jesus' suffering affect you and your understanding of your own life? Knowing that whatever you suffered, it's not the end. That Jesus can and will redeem it. That he has come and he suffered in ways that make him so aware of what we feel and yet allowed him to defeat the things that have hurt us. That knowledge can change us. It allows us to forgive. Not because we feel like what's happened is all right, because it's not. But if we have the will to trust God, that we will just step into that. God by his spirit, his Holy Spirit that dwells in you as a believer, will give you the power, will give you the soul, will give you that human connection to offer the grace of God, even in days like this, in the most difficult of circumstances. That's what it means to know that Jesus understands our suffering. And he calls us to live as he does, with humility and grace, in the face of pain and injustice and uncertainty. We never can take God's grace for granted. If we have been forgiven, 
we too are called to forgive. If Christ has suffered, he too knows how we feel, and yet he gives us the power by his own suffering and death on the cross and by his resurrection from the dead, he gives us the ability to forgive and to love, to serve, to be the catalyst of repentance and redemption. Friends, that's my prayer for you this week during this holy week, this final week of Lent for 2020. Consider who you need to forgive as you have been forgiven in Jesus Christ. Consider what God is calling you to let go of from your past, how he's calling you to give up suffering, just as Christ gave up his all for us. I pray you'll do that this week. Let's pray together. Father, that you would use us, that you would change us, that you would draw us in, that we would know as Christ experienced so much injustice and pain and suffering, as he took all the sin and shame of the world on him, so we too can take our sin and shame to you, knowing that you understand that Christ came to defeat all that sin and death and darkness. And we can have the power of your spirit if we would just confess our lives our dependence on you, that we would give you our whole hearts and say, Jesus, I need you to be my Lord and Savior. Take all my sin, all my shame. You know what I've endured. You know the worst of human suffering. You know what I've done. You know the evil I've done, and yet you came for me anyhow. Lord, if we would just give that to you, if you would give us that power by your Spirit that we would reach out to forgive someone else, as Jesus faces the shadow of the cross, that we would understand what it means that we can give up our suffering and that we can claim forgiveness in our own lives and we can give and must give forgiveness to others. Make that our mission. Lay that on our hearts and lives this week by your Spirit's power that we would act upon it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.